Yo, 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 my loves, my listeners. Today in the studio, I have a gift for you all. Dr. Getz. Oh gosh, so much fresher. <laughs> a gift. <laughs> a production professional with an expertise and concentration as an educator in production. Yes, yes. Here at CSU. Mm-hmm. Truly, truly one of my favorite professors I've ever had, honestly speaking. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. You're very kind. You're a wonderful student and very talented and a joy to teach. Hey, hey, don't do that to That's me. A, there's a lot of mutual <laughs> love in the studio right now. It, it's very easy to be here talking to you today, for sure. I love it. I love it. So today I'll start this episode off with a statistic that I came across that was very interesting. Well, a couple of statistics, as a matter of fact. According to the Pew Research Center, most Americans, about 97%, now own a cell phone of some kind. The share of Americans that own a smartphone is now 85%, up from just 35% in Pew Research Center's first survey of smartphone ownership conducted in 2011. Yeah, that's important. That was that's a while ago, mm-hmm. and that's a very big rise. Um, yes, time. it is. According to a 2008 survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, 54% of teens and 36% of parents felt as if they spend too much time on their phones. 72% of teens and 57% of parents admitted to checking their phone as soon as they wake up. 51% of teens and 72% of parents admitted to being distracted by their phone when having in-person conversations. Mm-hmm. So this all made me think, with the increase in Americans with cell phones and smartphones since the conducting of this survey, do you think that these statistics have increased as well? That's a really complicated question. The Obviously, yes. I mean, we, I think anecdotally, we we get more and more reports about our bad habits associated with our devices. Yeah. It's funny because early on, we didn't talk that way about them. It was my cell phone, really even in the early days of smartphones, it was, look at what my smartphone can do, isn't that cool? It took a few years, I feel like, for us to start then talking about screen time and our inability to carry on in person anything you know so i taught i began teaching in 2008 so i come from a professional production background like you mentioned and then i transitioned to teaching production in 2008 and when i started teaching some students had cell phones they weren't smartphones Uh, i think i was carrying a blackberry at the time Uh, And so it was odd to watch. I mean, that was a really cool experiment because teenagers tend to be at the front of a lot of these technological waves. Then watching the school district and the school and the administration try to constantly navigate and negotiate between the power of the cell phone to both engage and disengage, which it was very interesting so at one point during my teaching career cell phones could not be seen on campus they were to be locked in a locker all day and if they were seen they were confiscated and then locked in like the discipline office Mm -hmm. which seems so foreign now like can you imagine being in a class and someone taking your cell phone and locking it up for three days i remember those days yeah it it seems uh, a little (laughs) heavy-handed And so I think we've all learned better how to deal with it. 
But I think with increasing use comes increased concern that our use is healthy, whatever that means to you. And Hmm. the short answer, the really short answer is, I don't know. I don't know. It's such an, it's a new concept. And there are lots of studies that, that point to really specific pieces of the problem. But at the end of the day, we can't know for sure. There, we just haven't had enough time to really understand right. what it is we're looking at. In the eyes of evolutionary biology, there is really no way to like give Charles Darwin's theory any true validity because we can't observe millions of years of evolution right. in our lifetimes, in our lifespans, no matter what we attempt to do. It's just not really possible. So truly understanding the full scope of instant gratification, cell phone usage, and its future effects, all of these things are really like just philosophical pondering. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And it's interesting, the divide between those who think your device is sort of automatically negative. mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people will put that connotation on digital anything Right now, this tends to, you know, most stereotypically, it's assigned to younger versus older. But if we're really honest with our experience, it's a problem that we all face. It's not just younger people. It's also, it's anyone of any age. To your point about biological evolution, we can observe this. It doesn't make us any better at knowing what to do about it. I think in a lot of ways it increases our anxiety because we can watch and so much of it feels fast, even though it maybe isn't as fast as it feels, you know, it, it feels like we're hurtling down this path of constant technological upgrades and it can be exhausting and it can, it can be really, um, really tough on you Like, for instance, I have three kids. I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. They all, of course, they all want to play on the cell phone. And because I teach media, I don't let them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if my response is heavy-handed or not. Uh, I'm the one that's going to say, I'm not giving my child a cell phone. (laughs) And so I know logically, you know, the kid's going to get a cell phone eventually because they'll need one and it will serve a purpose. The, the benefits will outweigh my possible anxieties and worries. True, true. But in the meantime, I've formed a lot of strong opinions based on a few data points that I think are important that don't necessarily align to anyone else's life, anyone else's usage habits, anyone else's kids or anyone else's devices. And then who can I depend on in the meantime to write my opinions? There, <laughs> there is no governing body that has enough knowledge yet to make anything other than informed recommendations, which I'd be glad to follow. But yeah, I think it's put us as the audience in a very odd position in terms of having to assume a level of responsibility that we weren't necessarily trained for. Yeah. And so then you introduce younger people whether they're children or young adults. And then I think that amplifies our concerns for whatever reason. Definitely, definitely. I was watching this TED Talk. It was referenced that Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. did not allow his children to really um, play with the iPad or have technology like that. This was his creation, you know, and that, that was very interesting to me. But Dr. De Silva in another interview brought to my attention that... 
a lot of people in Silicon Valley don't allow their children to have smartphones or just interact with the technology yeah. that they are cultivating and developing. And I'm pretty sure it's along the same lines as what you're, what you're, what you're yeah. saying. They understand the nature of that which they are creating. I think that's important in my own life with my own children. And I think here's where I should give the warning that I'm not a child psychologist or a professional <laughs> and my advice is, you know, hit or miss at best. But the way I think of this is by a time trade-off. So would I rather have my child spend 30 seconds watching a commercial that even I created or 30 seconds doing something else? Yeah. In that situation, I'm going to choose something else because I think that 30 seconds could be more effectively spent doing a list of other things. All that to say, I do not monitor my children's time with a, a stopwatch or anything and, and track, but I definitely have personal goals every day to try to make sure that my children spend more time not on screens than they do on screens. And I feel like if I can do that most days, and some days it doesn't work. Some days I fail. The more days I can have with them off screen, I think the more context and meaning that screen time then has, and then that time is not as wasted. Right. I'd much rather raise, you know, my little audience of three, my three kids. I'd rather raise an attentive audience than a totally passive audience. That's my concern is that if they're too comfortable with their screen time, that they won't know how to activate themselves when they're inevitably going to bump into some content that is not good or isn't congruent with their belief system or, or whatever. And I just want them to have the tools to put that experience into perspective. This is some very great insight that you're giving me. I don't have any children, but yeah, I'm, that's I'm okay. definitely getting the 101 on it. All right, right. right. <laughs> well, and you know, I have to say that being a media professional, working in a school, having kids gives you a different perspective because it's one of the few times where you have many, many opportunities to watch people watch. Mm. So if you think about that, how often do you watch people watch? How often do you watch people listen? Especially if you're a content creator like me, this is a skill that you have to develop. I would just encourage anyone, just because I find it fascinating, the next time you're in a public place and there are lots of people engaging in some kind of media consumption, watch what they do. Hey, man, y'all better listen, man. He's giving the secret sauce. <laughs> it's true. He's giving the secret it's sauce. It's true. Like when I'm at a restaurant, I love watching people use their cell phones. It's fascinating to me that there are there are times that as a culture, we've sort of given permission for you to use your cell phone. Mm -hmm. And then there are times where in the same event, eating dinner at a restaurant, there are times where we've decided as a culture, again, without telling anybody that it's not cool to use your cell phone right now. Yeah. And so I'm kind of fascinated with the way that we're tr we try to navigate these gaps. Uh, like show Irakawa is our producer today. We were in a restaurant yesterday to pick up lunch and there was a sign that said, please, 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 three pleases, put your cell phone away before approaching the counter to order. Because at this particular restaurant, it's, it's like counter service and you have to pay attention and order. 
And then at the bottom, it said, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> three pleases, three thank yous, which I think, you know, is someone who's not a media professional. They see a problem and they're trying to create a friendly conversation around solving this problem. So again, if you're sitting at dinner in a restaurant with your significant other, when the waiter approaches, it would be rude to be on your cell phone. But once you've got your order in, if you just want to sit there in silence with that other person and stare at your cell phone, no one will say anything to you, but I will be, I will be watching <laughs> and, and wondering, you know, you walk by a table and there are two people that seem like they like each other, but they're not talking. They're just staring at their phones. There's a, a weird sort of social dissonance that occurs when you see that. I don't, you know, it's odd. I think a lot of times we in our own mind, we're trying to justify or explain what it is we're seeing. Like, why aren't we talking to each other? Right. And I see the same thing again as, as a teacher in class. When I went to college, before class started, the professor had to ask us to be quiet. Now when I teach, that rarely happens because most people are waiting for me to start by looking at their cell phone, which to me is, is not bad. It's just different. It's different. So you've led into my next question beautifully. Okay. <laughs> you talk about the relationship between phone usage and how we grow up, learn, and right. navigate these digital environments. What do you think it means to spend too much time on your cell phone? Mm. What does it mean to spend too much time on your cell phone? This is hard because it's really not, it's really hard to not bring your cultural norms into it, right? Mm hmm. And so depending on what your cultural expectations are and, and then how, you know, what level of enforcement are you willing to participate in? To me, I, I don't tend to be that kind of person. I would much rather understand the and remain open-minded about cultural differences than trying to uh, judge everything through my own. But there, like I said, with the restaurant situation, there, there are certain things that just seem odd. And I think those likely seem odd across most cultures. Typically when two people are together in certain situations, you expect them to be interacting with one another and to see them not doing that would be, it just seems strange and impersonal. You know, if I have to try to define how much time is too much time on your cell phone, I think I have to say, is your cell phone keeping you from enjoying things you used to enjoy? Mm. Can you live without your cell phone? And are you comfortable with your answer? So can you live without your cell phone? A lot of people will say, yes, I can. And that's, you know, fine. Maybe you can't, but we, you know, and so again, we just need to be honest with our answer. So can I live without my cell phone right now? No, I need I mean, I need Google Calendar to keep me employed. <laughs> I need I need my phone to ding and tell me where to be. I've got three kids that keep me busy. I need to be able to answer urgent emails from my phone. And so could I live? Yes. Would I like that? No. My life would be much more complicated. Yes. Okay, so then we turn to the folks that say, no, I couldn't live without my cell phone. And the first thing I would say is congratulations for answering honestly. And second, why? What are you, what does your cell phone provide that your life can't? 
And if that difference is significant and meaningful to you, then I would say your cell phone is a positive extension of your life. I think too often we sort of lump our digital experiences into this area that's pretend or not real or less meaningful. But we've seen significant social movements grow out of digital interactions. There's real community that grows out of these interactions. There's real community that only exists in digital spaces. And so when people are talking about their gaming experience, they're not talking about the video games that I played as a kid, you know, like Super Mario on an NES. (laughs) They're connected in real time with people worldwide. They have friends, they have extended family, they have real community that only exists because the technology allows it to. And so how could you look at someone and tell them the one thing they care about, their connection to the outside world? That's difficult to just look at somebody and say, well, you spend too much time on your phone. You spend too much time gaming. You know, we all make our choices. We all have the same amount of time in any given day. And my personal philosophy is that a lot of your life satisfaction and happiness comes by looking at how you spend those hours and whether or not those hours every day make you feel good. And if you're online all day long and your life is positive, who are we as outsiders to point and say, no, you spend too much time doing this. Again, I don't, I just don't think we know enough about the associated phenomena to make an overarching judgment. I would just say if you're in front of your screen so much that it becomes difficult to make other healthy choices, but that's the same sort of measuring stick we would use for any unhealthy habit right right? right, right. and so too often maybe just because it's new we talk about phones and screens but there are plenty of other things people get addicted to (laughs) that you know that that have unhealthy consequences and healthy consequences and so we tend to want to group people. That's a way that we try to understand the world. Essentializing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think an initial judgment is natural. We see someone using a screen more than us and, and we're skeptical. But I think if we dig a little deeper and really try to understand what that person is getting out of that interaction and that time, then we may change our mind a little bit about what screen time really means and how much is too much. I should also add on to this that for a significant portion of my professional career, I've been forced to be in front of a screen. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to have strong opinions about time away from screens because I am paid to be by screens or in front of screens often, especially when I was in production, you know, days and days and days spent in front of an editor, literally in a, in a tiny dark room. That's not something that's great for my own personal mental health. Other people don't face that challenge. And so who am I to say, which I do say this, I should be, you know, full disclosure is that I I often wonder how anyone can sit in a dark room for eight hours a day staring (laughs) at a computer. But that's my person. That's my own hang up. I need to be outside. I need a window. 
if you don't need to be outside and you don't need a window, who am I to come around and tell you that, you know, you should talk to your boss about the shortened work day? Like, let's not get into all that just because Bruce thinks this is too much inside time. Now, this is very interesting because you, like you say, you literally get paid to be on your phones and in mm-hmm. front of screens and stuff like that. And you spoke about the benefits and the negatives of your, of your phone and how it affects you. Mm-hmm. But do you feel as if you spend too much time on your phones or in front of screens? I do and I don't. In my current position as an assistant professor, I get a lot of non-screen time that is beneficial to me. Mm-hmm. So I teach students, I meet with students, I, I'm working on productions and other things. And so it tends to be that when my personal screen time life is balanced, I don't feel bad about it. But also I should say that in a lot of my work, both in production and in education, that screen time during certain times of the year is like feast or famine. I'll find myself prepping for courses or working on a research project and spending days, you know, reading, writing, editing all on my laptop. And it feels like I would pay money to get away from this thing. (laughs) But again, I don't know where to separate that from my, my personal wishes. My answer is sort of a yes or no answer as well. Sometimes I, I find myself aimlessly scrolling and then I mm-hmm. catch myself. I'm like, dog, what are you doing? You know, this could be, you need, you could be working on a show. You could be doing this. You could be making some music. You could be playing the guitar. You could be doing all types of things. Right. I constantly employ this sense of self guilt to manipulate myself into doing better on a regular basis. That's, um, that's important. And that feeling is real, even if the interactions that, took you to that feeling aren't or you don't think they are. And so that's really my main piece of advice for our current world and, and anyone living in it that's struggling with understanding that relationship. The first thing I want to say is I do the same thing. I have a PhD in mass communication and I still am an audience member. Mm -hmm. I still find myself mindlessly scrolling the habits that we form again are are so difficult to understand that's why the research exists like we're just starting to really investigate some of these things and begin to understand them in ways that can inform practice it's also new which is what makes it so fascinating but yeah as informed and educated as i am i i still scroll aimlessly for hours if there's nothing going on yeah it's hard not to beat yourself up when you know you've got a lot of other things to be doing. And then also there, I think there's a human need for time wasting and, you know, and relaxation. And I think where we get into trouble is when we find that scrolling to be upsetting. And this happens in my personal life. I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, Oh, I just saw the most upsetting thing on social media. You start talking to that person a little more, a little more. And if you get to it, what's interesting is, you know, they signed up for an Instagram account because they thought it was going to be fun. And they started posting because they thought it would be entertaining and fun and they're going to express their creativity. And somehow for some people, slowly, 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 it becomes a negative experience. 
but then we've formed our habits. And so it's really hard to suddenly gain some outside perspective that what you're doing is no longer fun. And so I think that's where my advice comes in is if you find yourself feeling negatively about it, whatever it is, whatever that, that habit is associated with your your digital consumption. If that gives you a negative feeling, you should explore that. You owe it to yourself. Otherwise, you can become an increasingly negative person because you are inviting these negative experiences into your life without necessarily giving it much thought. And that's where I think it can be potentially dangerous. Again, it's about your use and your gratification not so much what some media company is doing to you, but more how are you consuming it? If we take this to food, because we we tend to use this consumption word, right? Yeah, so there's yeah. this audience consumption thing. And so, you know, if I buy a loaf of bread from the grocery store and I eat the entire loaf in one sitting and get sick, whose fault is that? Right, right. You know, it's... They put the serving, the suggested serving size on the bread. Like I ignored it. I it's it'd be very difficult to sue the sue the baker, sue the grocery store, you know, sue the person who made the table that held the bread while I ate it. <laughs> but there's a lo- there's a long history in media and media effects study where people tend to blame the medium first before they dig a little deeper to really start understanding. I have come across this ideology that I first was introduced to by Mark Manson. He said that we can blame anybody for our problems on a regular basis, but the responsibility is still something that falls upon Mm -hmm. us. For example, hamburger laws were created because people that began to get health problems due to obesity, eating McDonald's every day and stuff like that, they were trying to sue these companies and blame them for it, but Literally, like, if you had a little bit of self-control, this wouldn't have occurred. This is not to justify the fact that they are pushing unhealthy foods to Mm -hmm. the community, but you're indulging, and that needs to be reckoned with first and foremost. Yeah, and and that's a tricky one because, you know, in a lot of communities, especially those that are food deserts, then the next argument is what are your other choices? Exactly. And... If you have no choice and we see that those companies and their advertising are, you know, predatory, mm-hmm. then we say, yes, like we, we need to get to the bottom of this. What's interesting about the internet, if we own a smartphone, like you said, and so many more own the smartphone, like you uh, shared the, at the beginning of the show. What's interesting is that we tend to enter the internet on a level playing field. The, all the choices are before us. And then it's just a matter of a free email account to decide which ones we, we begin participating in. And so, yeah, it, beco- it becomes hard to separate that level of responsibility. There's that initial sign-up phase, which I find just the idea of socially very fascinating because people are so quick to turn on the thing that they once loved. And if you stop and think about how much work you put into making this Instagram account or Facebook account or Twitter account, whatever social media account that you would like to complain about today, 
You worked so hard to make that. Like you signed up, you answered the questions, you made sure your profile picture was just right. And you typed out a little bio and like you spent hours making that thing. And then you spent days and weeks and maybe months and years interacting on this site. And it's not to say that your negative feelings are wrong. Your negative feelings are real and they need to be addressed. But again, I would ask you to pause before you blame Twitter or Instagram or Facebook alone. I think it's a combination of things for sure. Very complex situation. I Mm -hmm. agree. So you saw the shift from legacy media to the digital technology takeover. When was the first time you noticed the shift and what was the catalyst of your recognition? I like this. You could basically say you're old and saw things (laughs) (laughs) like you were there when it happened. Okay, so the moment I realized things were changing in a significant way was 2006 or seven. I was working at WALB in Valdosta, and I had just gotten a new camera that was digital. And the, the format of the digital camera was called P2. So this is before SD cards. There's this special P2 card. And the engineer that delivered my camera, because again, I was in a bureau. The main station was in Albany, Georgia. I was working in Valdosta. And so they drove down all this equipment to deliver it to me. And then I had to do a little training on it because it was going to change a lot of our workflows. So the engineer shows me the camera. It's, you know, I've been shooting at this point in my career five years or so. I'm like, okay, I, I catch up with that pretty quick. He says, now this is your card. It's a P2 card. We we got you two of them. I said okay. How mu- like how much footage does it hold? It's like about thirty minutes a card. I said okay. So I got what is essentially an hour long tape because again I'd been shooting on tape. So that was just kind of how we thought about the world was, mm. was time. And he said yeah, with the two cards you get an hour long tape. I I guess what I said was something along the lines of what about more cards. Like, how are we going to handle, because I shoot hours of footage every single month, where's it all going to go? And he said, he paused for a long time and he said, well, buying both of these cards together is actually more expensive than the camera itself. Mm. (laughs) I thought, y'all, my initial dinosaur thought was like, this is never going to (laughs) work. So with this P2 system, I had to, instead of, so I used to have to digitize my footage, take the tape and turn it into digital video files, which was a whole process and required all this special equipment. I didn't have to do that anymore. But what I did have to do is start inventing ways to store this new digital footage from the P2 card without using tapes. And this was during a time when my editing system maybe had maybe a hundred gigs of memory. Mm. And so every month I had to take my digital video, burn the individual files onto DVDs so I could offload and free up space on my computer so I could keep doing my job. And it was so time consuming and cumbersome that I... I couldn't understand why we were doing this. 
What was interesting was after I left that job, I transitioned to education in 2008 and we were using tapes again because that's what the school could afford. Mm -hmm. And we kept using tapes for another three or four years until the SD card and the cameras that were using that rolled out and it became affordable. Those cards were still pretty valuable so valuable that we actually assigned them to students the way that you would a textbook and we would gather them at the end of the semester and now it's really interesting in 2021 we i tell my students you need multiple cards these cards should be considered disposable that you know they're only 10 or 15 dollars on amazon you'll use them for a few years you're going to drop it it's going to break you know back up your stuff on a hard drive or on the cloud and so yeah it's really come full circle this first card that I was given was, it was about the size of a business card and it was worth thousands of dollars. Mm. And now we're using an SD card. If I lose my SD card today, like I'll be a little disappointed, but then I'll just order one for 20 bucks. It'll be here easily replaced. Not, not that big a deal, not that big of an investment. So the adaptation journey became a bit easier as it went on. It started off a bit rocky. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, we continue to see that. It's just that it tends to be that our evolution as an audience and our interactions with technology, there are just very few big jumps. It tends to be these almost overlapping series of steps and points along the way that makes the transition natural. Like if you're a gamer and you think about the evolution of in-home game systems, it was just a natural progression. This machine's a little better, and then that exists for several years, and then you kind of upgrade to this machine, and then slowly, slowly, slowly you go. It wasn't quite the same as like this earth-shattering, non-digital-to-digital transformation that we happened to experience in the early 2000s. You know, if I really think about what my first cell phone did, it's hard to even describe it to someone who's only lived in a world with an iPhone. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard to describe what a cell phone used to be like. Have you heard this thing about if you ask your child or ask a kid to pretend to talk on the phone? If you know a kid, ask them to pretend to have a phone call. And so if you ask me, I will extend my thumb and my pinky, right? And I'll hold my thumb up to my ear and pretend to talk on the phone. My kids don't do that. They just hold their palm. So they like make a shape of an iPhone with their hand and they just hold their palm up to their hand. (laughs) And they, hello. So they just like talk to the square because that's what they see us doing. But I was raised, you know, for the majority of my life, talking on the phone involved some kind of handset. Yeah. Right. So this old school phone. And so it's just funny the way that our day-to-day perspective so heavily influences what we think technology is and how it helps us. So from your perspective as a communications specialist, how has the coronavirus and the subsequent push to heavy reliance on digital media altered the way that we communicate in person? The first thing I want to say is what the pandemic did was it made all of y'all do what I have to do. <laughs> it was like suddenly I had people asking me about cameras and audio and lighting and all of these things they needed to navigate. Again, so this, you know, talking about sudden shifts while 
the technology shift associated with the response to the pandemic wasn't as sudden the audience shift was suddenly we all had to be involved in some sort of virtual meeting some sort of you know video content production especially the way that we responded here in Columbus Georgia in early or you know March of 2020 everything shifted online and so then suddenly all educators have to be participating in this digital delivery, which means you need to have an understanding of video production. My colleague, Chris Robinson and I often joke that we used to be the AV nerds and suddenly YouTube came along and then we were cool. (laughs) That's like the, the short version of the story was when I was studying media in the early 2000s, no one much cared. They're just those guys on campus with those cameras. And the stereotype was like, we were kind of nerdy and, you know, that kind of thing. And then here comes YouTube. And then really what changed everything was the smartphone. The fact that you could shoot, edit, and post to YouTube from your phone was just groundbreaking. And then we saw the rollout of other more visual mediums, Instagram, and now obviously TikTok has put video production at the forefront. And so more of us are doing it. Large portions of our audience are participating. And then the pandemic hits and it's like, even if you had avoided it and didn't want to participate, now your job is going to make you. And so <laughs> it it's very interesting in watching people navigate and then accept the responsibility for what is now video content that used to be controlled and delivered in, in other ways. The other big thing that I noticed was that just beyond zoom meetings was that people now seemed a little more satisfied with digital interaction in place of in-person interaction for certain things. So there's a certain brand of in-person interaction you can never replicate like you know, going to a concert Mm, is mm. probably always going to be more fun in person. But because of the pandemic, our willingness to spend money to access a digital version of the concert, I think goes up because we see that we're not allowed to go. And so if this is my only chance, why not get involved and, and be there digitally? And so what I'm interested to see is how the media industry handles that shift. If you think about the way major studios have rolled out movies, for example, to streaming, that release to streaming, this was something that five years ago we could not have imagined. The reliance on box office returns and other in-person measurements and activities for success really shaped a lot of what the industry thought of itself. And now that we've introduced this virtual opportunity, it'll just be interesting to see if we go back or how they go back or, or how they adjust in order to account for the two. So how do we improve our internet related communication from your Mm. viewpoint? And honestly, I guess, do we really need to? 
Okay, good questions. So the first thing that I would say is understand that the vast majority of the people you interact with online are not professional content creators and they deserve your grace. (laughs) You you should be (laughs) kind. The other thing that I'll say from the, the perspective of the person posting is that your audience expected that you spent time on this. So you should do that. (laughs) It's like a lot of the things I hear people complaining about really come down to complaints about quality. Mm -hmm. You know, we see a lot of fighting and a lot of division on social media. There are always going to be those people out there. They were there before social media. Uh, Obviously uh, one of my, sort of secret favorite things working in television stations was fielding difficult phone calls from complanatory audience members. Like I got a phone call one time because someone was really upset that we canceled Tony Danza's talk show and hit, and this man got on the phone and cussed me out for about five minutes. <laughs> and I found the whole situation so funny that I didn't even tell him that he had the wrong station. <laughs> he had, He called the wrong affiliate. It was the other affiliate that had Tony Danza's show and it did get canceled. But this man had called to cuss me out about Bob Barker being the only thing on to watch during the day, (laughs) which is, you know, it's sacrilegious in the world of television to speak ill of Bob Barker, I think. But um, again, if you translate that to social media, so here's someone just going in on some TV show that they hate in such a hurried manner that they haven't even really stopped to think that there are inaccuracies in the thing they wrote. So their emotion is real, but their delivery system is flawed. And then you've got tons of people reading it also probably in a hurry, not giving themselves time to think about who designed this message. What was the purpose? Can we forgive these inaccuracies And then we find ourselves in the for and against camp, which makes it increasingly hard to find commonality. And so my general advice is think before you post. The thing that I always tell all of my production students is you need to know who your audience is. You need to think about them before you conceptualize your content. You need to know who your audience is and you need to stop and think about them. What do they like? What are they not like? What are they up to? What are they going to be doing when they interact with your content? And it's an infinitely long list that can help you. Again, it's not that you have to have answers, but you do need to be thinking about this. And then when you read content, you need to give some credit to the person who wrote it and understand that the likelihood that they do this for their job is probably pretty low. And so they deserve a little bit of credit for trying to express themselves and you don't have to agree. And there are posts that are designed with hate in mind, right? Let's not, let's definitely not overlook that. But for the common situation that I hear the most is there's someone that I like or love a lot in real life and their social media life. I disagree with 100%. I would say, okay, you have in-person interactions that you value, 
that are positive and meaningful, I think you need to stop and think a little more deeply about these interactions online. What if it's just that they're not even thinking about it? They're just posting because they're bored and they enjoy, you know, there are people that lo- that enjoy the, watching that comment section blow up. You know, would you be as insulted if they called you first and said, hey, I'm about to do this thing just just for fun because I think it's funny. It, then when you read it, would you have the same reaction? Mm. If so, there's there's a bigger problem there that's that's worth discussion. But again, I think a, a lot of these problems could just be solved by taking it at its surface. Someone quickly wrote something. Someone quickly read something. Now we're all in a big misunderstanding. And really, at the core of it, the sad truth is we really all like each other. Yeah. And so it becomes increasingly difficult to bridge that gap because... Again, those emotions are real and you need to you need to honor them. If something is making you feel negative, I think you owe it to yourself to think about how often you want to do this thing. So back to the bread analogy. If I eat the loaf of bread and I do this once and I say that was terrible, it made me so sick, I'll never eat bread again. That's one thing. Yeah. If I eat an entire loaf of bread and it and you know in one sitting eight meals in a row then it becomes very hard for me to remove my own responsibility from how bad i feel right right because i've made the same mistake over and over and over without stopping and saying this is making me feel bad i don't want to dislike these people and so maybe the best thing for me is to just not be here for a little while that unfollow button still there it's still there and it will help it can help you (laughs) it can help you maintain your complicated in-person relationships for sure that kind of just led directly into my next question in the wake of the pandemic Um, Are there any other ways that you didn't mention that you suggest we adjust building and improving upon our in-person, interpersonal relationships? I would just say, I mean, it's corny, right? But be kind. Love. Yeah, just, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to love everybody all the time. But if I have to go to my one piece of advice that seems to work the best for the longest, is to just treat people kindly. So if we look at that situation where you've got someone who rushed to post and someone who rushed to react to that post, I think if we're acting in our most kind as our most kind selves, we may read that and say, "Oh, this might hurt somebody's feelings and it's not really what I care about." So let me tweak it a little. And then again, on the reader side, the person who's reading that post says, you know, maybe they didn't mean that. I'm just going to leave it alone. Right now, I'm really upset. So the most kind thing I can do is to just not interact. That doesn't solve the issue. And it can often lead to a long series of inaction, which is equally as detrimental. But it opens the door for us 
just not to hate each other immediately, mm -hmm. which I think is the most important thing. When you are in charge of teach, so I should, you know, we'll draw the curtain back a little bit. So one of the classes I teach is Calm Ethics. Our host, Bryant, was in that class with me. Great class, great class. Interesting thing about teaching a class in ethics is it forces you to think about some a lot of topics you're uncomfortable with. And I think we've all had the experience where someone in class has started to say something and we all get really uncomfortable <laughs> because we, we, and I think the source of that discomfort in my personal experience is I want to like this person and the way they're starting to talk makes me feel like I may not like them when they get finished. <laughs> and so what I have to do is wait. I have to wait. And luckily, the people I teach are studying communication, and they're trained to pick up on when their communication is not effective. Mm. And what you'll watch a communication student or anyone who's a great communicator do is when they realize that their communication is not effective, they'll begin to adjust. Because communication is collaborative, and if we feel like other people aren't participating with us, we don't you know, our motivation to communicate decreases. And so often I'm pleasantly surprised if I just keep my mouth shut and wait long enough and, you know, my nonverbal immediacy, I'm, I'm listening, I'm showing that I'm listening, I'm nodding, I'm making eye contact. And then when that person says something questionable, you know, we all have that little question mark face. I kind of tilt our head and squint one eye like, well, I don't know about that. A lot of times that person will then explain themselves in a way that even if you don't agree with, you find approachable and it becomes easier to be kind again. And so we shouldn't all agree. I think that would make our life a very boring place, but we should be better at communicating about our disagreements in ways that lead to understanding, not division and understanding in its purest form, meaning that I understand what you said to me, I respect you as a person, and we can just end it there. We don't have to agree today yeah. as long as we can talk tomorrow, as long as long as those relationships are still there that give us more opportunities in the future for further understanding, then we've lost nothing. You know, somebody gave me some insight a while ago that um, I really appreciated. They told me that a lot of times we get so wrapped up in opposing views, mm -hmm. like, oh, you like this? Uh, yeah. Or you like, it's all about comparison mm -hmm. and we create division instantly in our minds by trying to essentialize and stereotype, yes. compartmentalize people when they're really complex entities and we lose sight of the connection that inspired the interaction in the first place. That's right. You're exactly right. Why can't we just like things <laughs> without doing the comparison thing? And especially working in media. I mean, that's a lot of what we do. And I, I have to say, I, I like to ask my students what they like. And I like to ask my students what they don't like because it makes for fun conversation. It can be productive as it well. It can, it can. But also, I would encourage you, you know, try liking the thing that you like. Try loving the thing you love 
without depending on hating something else to do it <laughs> and see what you come up with. It's really interesting. Like, I'm not a big social media person right now. Am I going to say I dislike social media? No, it's too broad a topic, and there are too many people who really love it for me to say it's no good. It's just that I don't want to. I don't want to do some things right now. I got other things going in my life. I want to focus on, and so you never want to close off significant life opportunities just because you claim to dislike something, just because you claim to hate something. My my personal life journey is that I wasted a lot of time as a young person hating things. And I was unshy about sharing those opinions. Mm-hmm. And I I know that there are people in this world that have a negative impression of me because all I talked about were negative things. And if there were if there's one significant change I could make in my life, it would it would be to take that time back and spend it positively. Well well that was really profound. Is there <laughs> anything else that you would like to leave me with to think about for the rest of the day, if you don't mind? Oh, let's see. I'll just say that in, in terms of the media that you consume and the time and attention that you spend on it, my concern for everyone is, is just this simple, that something awesome will happen and you'll miss it. So it's such a simple piece of advice that is so hard to apply. And so often, like with my four-year-old son, I'm, I'm always saying like, look, 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 like, look at this, look at that. Look, like, and, you know, he's in his own world because he's four. And then what I catch myself saying is, you're missing it. <laughs> like, hurry up, hurry up and pay attention to this thing before it's over forever. Like here at the WCUG studio, and I guess in our department, I, I have a reputation for watching the train. There's a train that comes down Ninth Street, and it, it literally drives down the street. And the horn blows, and it's this big, interesting, you can't ignore it. There's a gigantic freight train that travels 20 feet past our office. And I have to watch the train. If I hear the train whistle, I stop what I'm doing. I stand up and I want to go appreciate that train. It has nothing to do with my job, but I just use it as a way to break up my day because I'm afraid that if I get to the point where my life becomes so complicated, I'm not willing to stop and look at that train that I'll be missing it. I'll, you know, I'll miss the thing that is interesting to me. And so I don't know what it is you love. I don't know what it is you're interested in. But if you find yourself missing that stuff because you're so consumed with something you care about less, then I would encourage you to put that thing down. If it's your cell phone, put down your cell phone. If it's a book, put down the book. If it's you binge watching something, take a break. At the end of the day, it's all about what is it you care about and How are you setting up your life so that you can interact with that as much as possible? Artful, artful. (laughs) And it all came back around full circle. Thank you so much, Dr. Bruce Getz, for being here today with me. It has been an honor. And y'all heard it here first. Live in the moment. Yeah. Appreciate what the universe has to offer. Embrace. And be yourself. Yeah. And 
then you can just check your cell phone later. That's, <laughs> check your phone later. Uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, just check your phone after the train goes by or whatever's going on. Yeah, yeah. It, it, we can still do all the same things. Yeah, and just be happier in the meantime, I think. This has been a conversation in the making for many years, mm-hmm. and I'm happy. So grateful that you took the time to have it with me Thank today. you for having me. I enjoyed being here. It's a great conversation. I love this show. I love what y'all are doing, and uh, I'm privileged just to be a small part of it, so thanks. All right, y'all. Take care. Love.